Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to James chapter 4. We will be reading verses 1 through 6. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This concludes the reading of God's word. Have have you ever found yourself in the middle of a, a conflict, a fight, an argument? Pick your favorite word that puts the blame on somebody else, not you. Uh, with a family member or a friend, and suddenly thought, I have not a blessed idea why we are still arguing. <laughs> you ever felt that? You know, I, I, I think it started with maybe getting home late from work again, or who put whose clothes in which laundry basket, or whose turn it was to sweep the kitchen after dinner or something like that. And honestly, part of what makes me so angry right now is that this family and this moment is all worked up about nothing. I think thoughts like this. Why is this such a big deal? Just grow up, people. If we're going to have a fight, let's pick something worth fighting about. Like the fact that when I tried to pull in the garage after work today, I opened the door and lo and behold, shoes were all over the garage floor. And so I had to get out of my car again before I could pull it into the garage. Or why do you keep forgetting to open our super easy budgeting app that I found and developed to see how much money we have left in the clothing category before you bought yet another pair of shoes because it was on sale. I will let you know that some of those scenarios have bearing in real life and some of those I have completely made up. Okay? I'll let you figure that out. But, but I wonder if that sounds familiar to you. Okay, I'm kind of putting myself and my family out there, but, but I think most of us can relate. We, we get in these situations where we're angry, and we don't entirely know why, and part of us is angry that we're angry about something that, in hindsight, why did we get angry about that? How did, how did shoes on the garage floor cause those words to come out of my mouth. Well, James 4 opens with the exact same question. Look at verse 1. It's an age-old question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What causes that stuff? Including those moments when we think, I don't know why I'm angry, but I'm angry, and I'm angry that I'm angry. 
Well, in context, James has just finished in chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, laying out a basic choice that we have to make, friends, every moment of every day. And that's this. Are we going to walk according to the wisdom of the world or according to the wisdom of God? And we learned last week that, that true wisdom, right, the wisdom of God, is humility in action that leads to peace. And so James says in chapter 3, verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. But apparently, peace was not ruling and reigning in the churches to which James was writing. No less than many times, it does not rule and reign in our own homes or churches or society. It seems their relationships, even as professing Christians, were, were riddled with what? Quarrels and fights. And James knows something. He knows that this situation isn't going to change until these Christians understand something and begin to act accordingly. What do they need to understand? What do they need to act on if, if they're going to have any hope of these quarrels and fights that are ravaging the community, they're walking in the wisdom of the world instead of the wisdom of God? What's going to bend that back to God's way? What's a really important biblical principle, or you could think of it as a timeless truth, that is very easy, relatively, to explain, but takes a lifetime to apply. And that's this. That the answer to all of our conflict with men, this way, is found in our relationship with God. That's the principle. That the answer to, to all the quarrels and conflict and fighting that we experience with each other, adults and kids alike, okay? I started with some family illustrations, but let's just be honest, the older we get, we just get more subtle, Right? Silent treatment. But the answer to those conflicts with men is found in our relationship with God. So, so if you want to discover both the source and the solution to the animosity you're experiencing in relationships right now, that discovery does not start with what that person is saying or what that person is doing or what that person is failing to say or do. That the source and the solution to all human conflict is found in the condition of your heart, friend. And in a particular way, what the condition of your heart says about the way you're relating to God. And so in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 4, James, James helps us to see our need to focus in two directions in a conflict. Two directions. We need to look within, Okay evaluating the desires and passions in our heart in light of God's word. And then we need to look without or up, running to Jesus for the hope and help that we need so we can love in a way and act in a way that makes for peace. So if you are in the midst of a fight right now or an argument right now, I will not ask you to raise your hands, but this is what you need to hear from the word of God. You need to look in and you need to look up. You need to look in. You need to look up. And James helps us get there by making a series of very, very perceptive observations and a short number of verses about what causes quarrels and fights. So we're going to linger on his first point 
and then move more quickly through the second and the third. So first observation he makes about our quarrels and fights, point number one, the root of evil are the desires within us. Look in here at verses one to three. So if you look at verse one, he's asking the question and the answer to that, classic James style, let's not beat around the bush. Let's just answer it in verse two. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You know, what do we feel like, friends, in the midst of a fight or a quarrel? I, I think we feel like this crazy thing is the other person's fault, and you are making me angry, and if you weren't so unreasonable, and if you hadn't done that again, I wouldn't have to get so angry right now. Well, well, James says the exact opposite of what I just said. That the conflict may be triggered by what someone else says or does. That their sin might prove the occasion, the stage, if you would, for your sin. But the ultimate reason we choose to sin has nothing to do with them and everything to do with the desires in us. So, for example, because there's no lack of examples for this sermon this morning, if I meticulously walk through our entire bedtime routine as a family after a long day, and I sink into my reading chair only to hear mm, voices down the hall, and, and let's just say they might not be happy voices or I'm falling asleep right now voices. What I choose to do next has absolutely nothing to do with my kids. You realize that? And has everything to do with what is in Matthew's heart. Nothing to do with my kids. That's the occasion. That might be the trigger but if the ruling desire, the, the passion sitting on the throne of my heart, I almost wanted to bring a, a giant chair up here that's kind of gilded, like this is the throne of my heart. If what is sitting on it right now is peace and quiet, and in particular of the, I worked my butt off today to put food on your table, you little, so I deserve peace and quiet. Well, then what's going to happen next? I'm going to snap my Kindle shut. I'm going to double step down the hall. I'm going to issue a series of angry threats and ultimatums. And that's going to be followed either by indignant silence or sometimes this is even more painful. Hey, Dad, do you think you just lost your temper with us? <laughs> what are you confronting me? <laughs> yeah. Right? But, but what, what if the ruling desire on that throne, okay, picture the gilded throne, is different. What, what if it's, I want more than anything else to honor God's purposes and priorities for my life, including the gospel ministry of parenting? Well, then I might be wiped, but Lord willing, I'm going to quietly walk down that hall and patiently address my kids, right? What made the difference? Same scenario. What desire was on the throne of my heart? That's what James is saying. And so the application here, friends, in verse 2 is very clear. Never blame someone else for your own sin. 
Don't do it. Okay, their, their sin might be the occasion for your own, but you are responsible for your own. We, we sin, we fight, and we quarrel. We commit evil against one another whenever a desire other than glorifying God occupies the throne of our hearts and another human being has the audacity <laughs> to frustrate it or to deny it or to say, I don't feel like satisfying that desire right now. That's where we get in trouble. And so the next time you feel anger, just as an example, rising in your heart towards someone, friends, stop and ask, I'm clearly sinning right now, so what is it that I want that this person is not giving me? Think about that. Okay, what, what ruling desire in my heart am I demanding that they fulfill? Is it respect? Is it peace and quiet? Is it money? Is it, is it sexual satisfaction? What, what is it that I want that I'm not getting that's causing me to get angry? That's the question we have to ask. It's the question James is pointing us toward. Because the root of evil are the desires within us. But of course, when, when we discover those things, and I think many of you can relate to those things, because even through a mask, I see your heads nodding, which is helpful. <laughs> if we see those desires, what in the world do we do with them, friends? You know, how do we handle the desires in our heart, things we want, that other people around us inevitably fail to satisfy? Do, do we just try to, to stuff them? You know, some of us are, attempt that. I don't want anything. I'm a steely independent American. I don't need you. Try to make me angry. You know? Or, or do we try just to not care so much anymore? Because the more we care, the more we get hurt. Well, look at verse 2. James doesn't point us in either of those directions. What does he say? Verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. That's stunning. <laughs> it's not what I'd expect him to say, right? James' first response to the desires in our heart that are getting us in trouble isn't to say, could you just stop wanting that, okay? Or could you just stop caring about that? No, what does he say? He says, look to God to satisfy that desire instead of looking to that human being. Talk to God about that desire before you open your big mouth and talk to them. That's what he says. So, for example, if you're a parent of adult children, could a good desire for them to experience God's blessings in their life create a temptation for you to give them a, let's just say, less than gracious piece of your mind <laughs> when they make yet another foolish decision? That temptation's real, right? So, what's the solution? will take that desire for them to experience God's blessing and pray to God for him to work in their heart and life instead of you pressuring them to change. Do you see the difference? We, we, don't, we don't stuff it. We don't ignore it. We don't stop caring. It's a good desire, but that is not a desire your adult child can ultimately fulfill. Can they bring their power and strength, God's blessing to pass in their life? No. No way. 
Only God can satisfy that desire. So what makes the most sense? Ask God. Right? Pray to God and, and keep casting your cares on him as you wait for God to do what only God can do. So, so whether it's a desire for joy or peace or refuge or identity or love or justice, that's been in the news a lot, right? All, of, all sorts of other good things we want. The issue, friends, James is saying, is not often what we desire. It's who or where we're looking for the fulfillment of that desire, the satisfaction of that desire. So obeying, verse 2, means remembering that only the Lord Jesus can satisfy our desires for good things. People will always let you down. So we take those good desires and we ask the Lord to fulfill them in the way he knows best. It's like David in Psalm 4, right? Verse 6, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift the light of your face up upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have, than the world has, when their grain and new wine abound. We go to God with those good desires because he's a generous king. And he invites us to ask him to fulfill our deepest longings and desires. But, but that assumes something, doesn't it, friend? What does that assume? Well, that assumes the desire we're asking God to fill is what kind of desire? A godly desire, right? A good desire. But as I began, is that always the case? No. No, our our desires are never categorically or completely good in this life. At at best, they're a mixed bag. What's the world say? Just so we see this in contrast. The world says, if you feel like doing it or saying it or having it, then it's part of who you are, and therefore what? It must be good. Right? What does God say? Very different than that. What does God say? God says, well, if it's something that you feel like doing or having or saying, it might be good, but it might not be good. You have to test that, because until Jesus comes back, all our desires, even as Christians, are going to remain corrupted by sin. And so the Bible, listen, very important here, warns us to neither reject our desires like an ascetic monk, okay? Or to worship our desires in the name of American self-expression. God rejects both of those. Why? Because our call is to bring our desires to the word of God and say, Lord, would you sift and evaluate my desires? Why? Why do we need to do that? Because if we don't, we're going to fall into the trap of verse 3. You ask and do not receive. Why not? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now that, that word passions has a broad range of meaning in scripture. It can mean Good desires, bad desires. In the context of verse 3, it's clearly bad because it's describing sinful desires that God refuses to fulfill, and lovingly so. You know, there are times I've heard someone say, maybe you've said or heard somebody say, well, you know, I tried to do it God's way. I gave it a college try, but it just didn't work. He never brought the spouse He never gave me the job. It it just, he didn't work. I mean, if he wants to come through for me, that's fine. 
But, but if he doesn't, I know what I want, and I'm going to make sure I get what I deserve no matter what I have to do. We, we think like that, don't we? Or we feel like that. Friend, friend, if you've asked God to satisfy a desire in your heart that he has yet to meet, does that mean it must not be a godly desire? No. Don't assume that. But what does it mean? In response to verse 3, it means we should check our hearts and ask the Lord to test us and show us if what we're desiring is something that is good and pleasing to him and if we're desiring it for his reasons, not ours. Those are hard questions, right? So questions like, why do I want that raise? Or why do I want that girlfriend? Or, or why do I want that person to remember my birthday? Or why do I want that child? Or why do I want that business to grow? You know, it could be, friend, that you want what is good, but for reasons that have nothing to do with God and everything to do with yourself. And what James is reminding us of in verse 3 is that God isn't fooled. <laughs> He's not fooled, right? He won't let us co-opt him into serving the idols of our heart. He, he won't let us use him, in other words, to satisfy a desire that isn't pleasing to him or isn't submitted to his authority. He's not a heavenly vending machine, folks. He's your king. He's not a, I found the secret prayer that lets two cans of Mountain Dew fall out. <laughs> no, he's your king. He's not going to let us use him to serve our idols. And so we have to stop demanding that created things satisfy our soul. That's what James is getting at in verse 2. And we have to stop bringing desires to the Lord, demanding that he fulfill them when we haven't done the heart work of saying, Lord, am I even wanting what you say is good in your word? And am I wanting it for the reasons that you say are good? You have to ask those questions because the root of evil is the sinful desires within us. It's not categorically good. Resist the lie of the world, friend, that if you want it and feel it, it must be good. That's simply not true. Point number two, the problem of evil, we looked at the root of evil, the problem of evil is our betrayal of God. Looking here at verses 4 to 5, the problem of evil is our betrayal of God. You know, you could step back from what I've just been saying in point one. The root of evil are the sinful desires within us, and you could think this. Okay, Matthew, I get it. There are things that I want that I probably shouldn't want, or things that I want for reasons I probably shouldn't want them. But, but I mean, come on, man. You're wearing me out. Nobody's perfect. And, and, and this whole, like, why do I want what I want— it, why is that such a big deal? Why do I need to spend all this time evaluating the desires of my heart? That doesn't sound like fun. I mean, people like that are just miserable. I know people like that. And they're just constantly like, why? I don't, I, they're a mess. Introspection all over the place. That, that just seems stressful, Pastor. Why not just do whatever I want to do as long as no one gets hurt?
Well, James anticipates those kinds of 21st century thoughts. <laughs> so what does he do in verses 4 to 5? It's, it's really helpful here. The spiritual goal he guns for here isn't, isn't some kind of lifestyle, friend, of, a, of excessive introspection where you never actually enjoy or pray for anything because you're all bent out of shape about your motives. Okay, The goal is a spiritual sobriety that recognizes the spiritual significance of our desires. Why? Because what we want, like a mirror, reveals the true condition of our heart and the nature of our relationship to God. That's the connection. So think about it. As Christians, whenever we love or desire something more than we love or desire God, right? Whenever, whenever the ruling passion sitting on the throne of our heart is something or someone other than God, what does James say, verse 4, we are guilty of? Spiritual adultery. Sheesh. Really? Why? It's a little harsh, James. Well, it's because, friend, if you're a Christian, Jesus bought you at the cost of his own blood. He didn't just send a packet of salvation benefits your way. You're his people. You're his bride. He owns you. You are his purchased by the most costly thing in the universe, the blood of Christ. And so whenever we, we swap him out and swap something else in as the supreme treasure of our souls, we are not just making a whoops little spiritual mistake. <laughs> We're committing divine betrayal. That's James' point. We're violating our covenant relationship with God. Look at verse 4. What's he say? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be or tries to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Don't, don't get confused here, okay? James isn't talking about avoiding or refusing to love people who don't know Jesus. When he says friendship. Okay, he's talking about an intimacy of relationship where we give our, our highest affections and our deepest loyalties to the same gods of power and pleasure and possessions that the entire world chases after. That's what he's talking about. It's like Jesus says in Matthew 6, you can't serve two masters. You, you can't give your heart to the things of this world and also give your heart to King Jesus, that there is no such thing as a Swiss Christian. What do I mean by that? There is no such thing as spiritual neutrality. You'll never find a category in the Bible for this kind of postmodern place of, you know, I'm not against Jesus because I'm not against anybody. You know, I'm, I'm against hate. But I'm not exactly all in with him either. You know, I, I like to keep my options open and, you know, I consider myself spiritual. That, that spiritual neutrality, that doesn't exist, friend. That's what James is saying here. Either you're an enemy of the world and a friend of God, or you're a friend of the world and an enemy of God. We, we have to banish the lie as Christians that you can remain a friend to God while giving away part of your heart 
to the pursuit of wealth or fame or sexual ecstasy or all manner of other gods that the world chases. You can't do that. You can't have it both ways. And so if you're desiring or seeking after what the world desires and pursues, the clear implication here is that the allegiance of your heart isn't with God. It's with the world. If you're behaving like the world, loving what the world loves and seeking what the world seeks, don't show up to church on Sunday and say, oh yeah, Jesus is awesome. Because this is what's really true of you. And James reminds us in verse 5, this is so helpful that the God who created us and died for us is a jealous God. He's jealous for his glory. Verse 5, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Friend, God is not, he's not an indifferent deity. Okay? He's not, he's not mucking about in heaven, just grateful for anyone on earth who's willing to throw him a bone like you know, like some sort of debater at a presidential debate, and I'll just be grateful if my approval ratings go up two points. That's not God. He's the Lord of glory. And the intensity of his commitment to his glory, that, that's the very fire from which the universe sprang. It doesn't get more foundational than that. And our God won't stand idly by if you ignore him or if you rebel against him. There's only two outcomes, friend. Either you run to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins or God is going to justly punish you for your own sins. Sin is that serious. And so the problem, please remember this, isn't that we love the people or pleasures of this world. Okay? They're a gift from God. The problem is that we love them more than God or instead of God. That's what he's saying. So when you're tempted to just ignore all the desires swirling within you, all right, or, or think that whatever's going on in your heart, because that's what all Christian people and parents and whoever are always talking about, gosh, exhausting. Remember this, okay? The problem of evil isn't so much, or first of all, why do bad things seem to happen to good people? It's often voiced that way. The real problem of evil is when I sin, I'm betraying God. That's the real problem of evil. Here's the last observation James makes about our quarrels and fights. The root of evil is the desires within us, and the problem of evil is our betrayal of God. The solution to evil is the grace of God. Look at verse 6. I think it's fair to say, and even as I was working on this sermon this week, it it was almost an exercise in progressive discouragement. (laughs) Because, you know, you're just working from one to two to three to four. Guilty, guilty, guilty. You ever found a man or a woman who has the power within themselves to change their own heart? Not in me. We we like to think, don't we, that we can rule over our desires. But in reality, what's true? They rule over us. So we need to remember what James says in verse 
6, that the solution to evil is the grace of God. What does God do, friend, in response to that mess we've just reviewed? What what does his holy jealousy for his glory in and through your life compel him to do? I'll tell you what it compels him to do. It compels him to send Jesus after you, to pursue you as a father, a prodigal son, or as a husband, his wayward wife. It, It is both, hear this, exceedingly frightening and exceedingly good that we serve a God who is jealous for his glory. Why? Because that jealousy compels him to do verse six. He gives more grace. And so we say with Paul, where sin abounds, the grace of God, the undeserved love and favor and transforming power of God, won for us by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that grace abounds all the more, no matter how much your sin abounds, friend. So you say, I'm sunk, Matthew. You have no idea what I've done. And I say, friend, I don't. But guess what? God gives more grace. You say, pastor, it's hopeless. I keep committing the same sin over and over and over again. And I say, I bet you do. And guess what? God gives more grace. (laughs) You say, I know this is wrong, but I can't stop craving it anyway. What does God say to you? I give more grace. And so in view of the spiritual adultery in our hearts, this is what you need to hear, what James is saying. The only hope you have, friend, is the only hope that you need. God gives more grace. And I love how Douglas Moose says this. James is here reminding us that God's grace is completely adequate to meet the requirements imposed on us by his jealousy. Isn't that beautiful? That that there's there's no depth of evil. There's no degree of corrupted desire or mixed motive or sexual lust that's too great or too strong or too big or too long standing for the power of God in Jesus Christ to completely shatter and overcome. That's our hope, friends. And so we're going to learn in the second half of this passage in a sermon I'm not going to preach right now, how do we practically access and experience God's heart-changing, gracious power in our life? But what I don't want you to miss up front is the call to hope in the Lord. Even before James gives us all the details of how that deliverance works out, we have to turn our eyes upon Jesus and the grace, the spiritual hope and help that God holds out to us in him. I want you to think of it this way. If the cumulative guilt of the sin of the world was not strong enough to keep Jesus in the grave, then why do you think that your sexual lust is too big for him? Or that your financial greed is too big for him? Or that your insatiable hunger for the approval of man is too big for him? Or your lifelong desire to prove the worth of yourself to yourself is too big for him. If if you want the gospel and the good news of Jesus in miniature, it's James 4, verse 6. He gives more grace. James is a really good pastor, isn't he? He knows that the, the root of evil are the desires within us. 
The problem of evil is our betrayal of God and that the solution to evil is the grace of God. And, And that's why I said at the very beginning that the answer to our conflict with men is found in our relationship with God, okay? So, so our relationship with God, just to review here, is the answer in the sense that it explains what's wrong in our quarrels and fights. What's wrong? A ruling desire for something or someone other than God has camped out and taken over on the throne of our heart, right? And our relationship with God is the answer in the sense that it explains how do we get out of this mess, but we look to him for the power we need, the grace we need to change, and that he freely gives to us in Jesus. That's what we're going to look at in a couple weeks. For now, camp out on this, okay? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Don't, don't set yourself in opposition to God by refusing to confess the sinful desires in your heart, friend. Recognize them, bring them to the Lord. And ask, as King David did in Psalm 51, God, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create a clean heart in me, God, and renew a right spirit within me. Let's ask the Lord to do that right now. Father, as many sections in James are, you waste no time in this passage in lovingly bringing the gifts of conviction. And I pray, Lord, that you would guard each one of us from a hardness of heart that would be tempted to say, yeah, 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 I know that, but, but not take those basic, essential truths who you are, how we work, how you made us, where we get in trouble, what the answer is, and fail to to bring all that and and ask you to work in our hearts. So Lord, right now, we ask you to work in our hearts. We pray that you would cleanse us of desires that are not pleasing to you, that you would help us to bring good desires to you instead of demanding that other people fulfill them. And Lord, I pray that in every conflict we have this week, because it's not a matter of if, but when, that you would give us the humility to not say it's their fault, but to be quick to humble ourselves, confess the warring desires within us that lead us into sin. Thank you, Father, for the insight we find in your word to who we are and how we work. You are so kind to shepherd us. In Jesus' name, amen.